my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here, and, and uh, it's my privilege on many Sundays to bring God's Word. Uh, an important part of our worship, and part of our encountering God together is being before His Word. And, and the Bible teaches, and we believe that His Word is living and active, uh, that when we are before His Word, it isn't just an academic exercise. Um, it is meant to be, and it is by the power of the Spirit, an encounter with God. And so we are uh, a church that values going through the Word. And so we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are, I don't know, about five messages in, I think, or so. And this series will continue to the end of the spring, basically. Um, by the way, in the summer, we're going to do a series on um, what is worship about, what is Sunday worship about, and we'll be digging into the Scriptures and doing that. So occasionally we'll take a little vacations into topical series, but usually we're in a book of the Bible moving through, and even in our topical series, we're grounding those, of course, in the Word. So uh, you could be turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll start in verse 10. While you're turning there, let me recount a story from the life and ministry of Jonathan Edwards. He was a New England pastor in the mid-1700s. He pastored with his grandfather initially in the city of Northampton, back when it was more like a town, a small town. Um, and perhaps you know about him, but listen to his story as he relates it. He says, Just after my grandfather's death, it seemed to be a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. Licentiousness for some years prevailed among the youth of the town. There were many of them very much addicted to night walking and frequenting the tavern and lewd practices, wherein some, by their example, exceedingly corrupted others. And by the way, you'll have to pardon some of the older language forms here. Continue. It was become very customary with many of our young people to be indecent in their behavior on Sundays, which doubtless would not have gone far had it not been that my grandfather, through his great age, was not so able to observe them. In, the, in April 1734, there happened a very sudden and awful death of a young man in the prime of his youth, who being violently seized with pleurisy, and taken immediately very delirious, died in about two days. Which, together with what was preached publicly on that occasion, Edwards warned about being unprepared for eternity in the sermon, much affected many young people. This was followed with another death of a young married woman who had been considerably worried about the salvation of her soul before she was ill, and was in great distress in the beginning of her illness, but seemed to have peace and assurance of God's mercy to her before her death, so that she died very full of comfort in a most earnest and moving manner, warning and counseling others. This seemed to contribute to sober the spirits of many young people, and they began to appear more of a religious concern on their minds. Particularly, I was surprised with relation of a young woman who had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. When she came to me, I had never heard that she was become in any way sincere, but by the conversation I then had with her, it appeared to me that what she gave an account of was a glorious work of God's infinite power and sovereign grace, and that God had given her a new heart, truly broken and sanctified. God made it, I suppose, the greatest occasion of awakening to others of anything that ever came to pass in the town. The news of it seemed to be almost like a flash of lightning upon the hearts of young people all over the town and upon many others. Those among us who used to be farthest from sincere 
and that I most feared would respond, wouldn't respond well, seemed to be awakened with it. Many went to talk with her. There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who tended to be the vainest and loosest, and those who had been disposed to think and speak lightly of genuine faith, were now generally subject to great spiritual awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. This work of God, as it was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious change in the town so that in the spring and the summer in 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor of joy, or yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy and families on account of newborn and husbands, oh, sorry, on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. The doings of God were seen, then seen in His sanctuary. God's day was a delight. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the pastor as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears. While the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Our young people, when they met sought to spend the time in the talking of the excellency and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God, His glorious work and the conversion of a soul, the truth and certainty of the great things of God's Word, the sweetness of the views of His perfections, etc. I am far from pretending to be able to determine how many lately have been the subject of such mercy, but I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought to Christ in this town in the space of half a year. Those who were formerly loose young persons are generally, to all appearance, become true lovers of God and Christ and spiritual in their dispositions. I hope that by far the greater part of persons in this town above 16 years of age are such as have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a story. And it all started with two funerals. And I want to look today at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes because what we're going to find, God uses sorrow, sadness, and even funerals to grant His true wisdom. God uses sorrow, sadness, things even like funerals to grant true wisdom. So let's pray. Because we need His wisdom. We need His perspective. We need His life. We need some of what went on in Northampton back in the 1700s. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for You. And we thank You, Lord, that You've given us Your Word that we might experience its truth and the impact that You intend. And Lord, You intend good things. You love us. You want us to walk in Your ways. You want to rescue us from foolishness. You want to lead us in wisdom. You want to lead us to that life that is real life. And so I pray, speak through Your Word. I pray You'd help me, Lord. I need You. And um, You're so good and Your ways are so good. Uh, and I am so inadequate. But we look to You. 
our gracious Lord. Speak to us, glorify your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and then into 7. If you don't need to watch the screen, I'd just encourage you to look at your Bible in your hand. If you need a Bible, um, we have Bibles at the back to give out. Much better to have one in your hand, uh, either electronically or the, on paper. But it's going to be rejected for you as well, for your convenience. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. That he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God's word from Ecclesiastes. This section of Ecclesiastes addresses the reality that we often don't know what is wisest in the short run. That we therefore should walk humbly before God and think of our whole lives before him. Think of the perspective of a funeral as we look at our whole lives before the Lord who is sovereign. Wisdom comes by humbly submitting our whole lives to God. That is, I think, the bottom line from this section of Scripture. So let's dig in and work our way through here. Uh, Verse 10, the preacher tells us whatever has come to be has already been named. Um, That may seem... uh, Unclear, but naming in the Bible is a way of exercising authority. Um, So Adam names the animal kingdom. That's Adam exercising his authority as the the sub-regent, as the the king, and and shortly with him will be the queen, under the Lord. So he names the animal kingdom to demonstrate that he's the image of God over creation. We, I think, understand this a little bit. Uh, When you can name something, there's a, a better understanding of it. Uh, There's a mastery that's there, right? So before we understood 
uh, disease and things like bacteria. Diseases were an elusive mystery, but now we can name them. Um, the E. coli and so forth, these, these different bacteria and viruses, we, there's a degree of control in the naming. That's the idea here, is that, the, that there is nothing that's come to be that has not been named. And that includes mankind. It goes into this. It is known what man is, and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So this section is ultimately pointing to God. And in our section of Scripture, in this uh, from verse 10 of chapter 6 to verse 14 of 7, you'll see that it's bookended by the same sort of statement. It begins with this idea that God is in total control. And He is in control of everything, and we're not. And it will end that way as well. And, and there's a call in all this to look to the Lord. That's why this is bookended uh, this way. God knows everything. He is in control. He knows what man is. He, he understands us through and through. There's no escaping Him. He alone knows everything. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about our future. We don't. We don't. And, and part of what's going on here is the, the preacher is saying that uh, our words can be vanity. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? That we can philosophize and, and talk about you know, how we understand us and everything, but ultimately we have so little control over anything. There's so little that we actually do understand. And so this whole idea of theorizing and philosophizing can be vanity. It can be empty because we can't even control our future. Only God can. And yet God knows everything. It's like what the psalmist David says in Psalm 139 about the Lord, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind me before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This idea that God knows everything. He knows our every thought. He knows what we're going to say. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what tomorrow holds. He has named everything, including us. So our lives are dependent on Him. Only God is in control. Our lives are fleeting. Our lives are full of uncertainty. That's what Ecclesiastes is again and again saying. You cannot control your life. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Only God does. Often, our lives take turns we never expected. Our best laid plans can evaporate. Our cherished dreams can be dashed. Our intentions and expectations can be unmet and unsatisfied. The legacy of our lives may not be preserved. We have no control over these things. Only God does. But we like to think we do, don't we? We like to think that we have control, that we are in charge, that our plan will control the future somehow, that if we do A and B, we will get C. We like to think this. And we like to take it to great extremes. We like to give ourselves a sense that we are the sovereign ones. We hold the sentiments like that, like those expressed in the famous poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Maybe you know this poem. We have it to project. He said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You ever heard that poem? You ever thought those thoughts? Ecclesiastes is coming at you to poke and to prod you with the reality that this is an illusion. It is an illusion. And we mustn't build our lives with this sort of thought and this sort of approach. Certainly we can applaud courage in the face of hardship, so don't hear what I'm not saying. We, we certainly applaud that. But that's totally different than thinking that we are we are masters of our fate and captains of our soul. It's ridiculous and foolish is what Ecclesiastes is saying. Only God is master and captain of all. And we must face life with a deep humility. That's what this passage calls us to. A deep humility where we look to God. We depend on on God, not ourselves. We look to Him. We rely on Him. And in that dependence on God, we find in Him all that we need. We find a safe place in Him. He is in control. We can allow Him to be God and us to be us. His creatures dependent on Him, boasting in Him, not ourselves. Now, the preacher goes on in our passage to talk about the sort of wisdom that we ought to live in in light of these things. So He's going to take chapter 7 and lead us in how to understand these things. And so he says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. This is a parallel comparison in the Hebrew Scriptures. We see this often where things are said twice, slightly differently. So uh, that's how we understand what is meant here. So a good name is better than precious ointment, is in parallel with the day of death and the day of birth. So what he's saying is the good name that is realized on the day of your death is better than the things that are fleeting and temporal. Whatever they might be. That looking at our lives in terms of our whole lives is wisdom. Instead of evaluating our lives by how much precious ointment we have or, or the exciting things that are going on. Now there's a place for that in Ecclesiastes, right? So he is going to talk about often throughout this that, that those, the, the things of enjoyment are meant to be something that strengthens and refreshes us. But we're not to hang our hat on that. We're not to live our lives by those things. We're to live soberly in light of our whole lives. It's better to go to a funeral than a party, is what he's saying. Better to benefit from sorrow and sadness than to be merely jovial and happy. It's better to suffer the rebuke of a wise person than to have your buddies laugh at your jokes. Better to have those who know you tell you what needs to change in your life than to hear those who don't really know you merely laugh your good joke. That's what's being said here. 
It's forcing us to face the reality that we need to evaluate our lives soberly and bring that to the Lord. And there are so many things that can distract and deceive us from looking at our lives honestly. And things like funerals and times of sadness can wake us up to take an honest look at our lives. Like in the story with Jonathan Edwards, this was part of my experience of coming to Christ. I, when I was young, I remember these things vividly. And in the summer before my ninth grade, I, I determined that I would do whatever it took to be respected and admired by my peers. So I started hanging out with the cool crowd, smoking pot with them, drinking, going to parties. I also went out for wrestling because sports was a quick way to, to popularity. I did well in, in wrestling, one of the better ones in my weight class. So by the time I was in eighth grade, I, I felt like the BMOC, the big man on campus. Success in sports, lots of friends, lots of parties and girlfriends. And then One of my buddies, my close friends, also named Paul, was killed in a motorcycle accident. And I remember being shocked as I looked at him there in the casket. Just a day or two before that, he was laughing, causing mischief, having fun, and there he was in the casket, lifeless and gone for good. It shook me. I wish it had shaken me enough, but I kind of brushed it off in time and I went back to my lifestyle. There were a number of circumstances looking back that God, I believe, designed to catch my attention, but it really wasn't until another funeral, my senior year, Kevin, I had grown up with Kevin, he had the same birthday as me. Kevin had had Hodgkin's lymphoma and seemed to be getting better and I was planning to visit him in the hospital. I went to church that Sunday morning, so despite my lifestyle, I still went to church every Sunday. Went to church and was planning after church to go see Kevin, and they announced in church that he had died. I was in shock. I blubbered before my dad. I wasn't someone who would do that. <laughs> I was a tough guy. I was affected by Kevin's death. And he used that death to wake me up. And over the course of the next months, my life changed. I started searching for something better. I started trying to change my life, actually. I didn't know how to do it. I knew I just needed somehow to change. But God used all that in my, my vain efforts to change, to make, to make me face my desperate need for rescue. That my problem was me and my sin. And so I was ripe and ready when I first heard a clear and succinct explanation of the good news of Christ, that Christ had lived the righteous life that I hadn't. And He had sacrificed that life on the cross to die in my place, to pay for my sins, all these things I was so aware of. To atone for my sins so that through faith in Him, I could be forgiven and have a new life. And, and when I heard that, I got on my knees and received the good news. God in my life also used Two funerals. That's what the preacher is talking about here. The sobriety that comes when we look at life in, in light of a funeral, in light of the sad things, in light of the reality, in light of our whole lives, evaluating our whole lives, in light of sorrow. And so James 4 says something very similar. God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will exalt you. Let me ask you, have you been living your life self-confident and sure of your plans? Have you been running from the reality that you are desperately needy for God's rescue and God's help? Have you been fooling yourself thinking, I got this. I can do this. We can make this work. No one can make it work but God. No one has got this but God. It's a lie. It's unhelpful. Stop reciting the Invictus poem to yourself and look to God. Realize who He is. This is why Jesus came. This is why He lived. This is why He died. This is why He rose again. This is why He's reigning. He is the only life that got this. He is the only life that has overcome the world. And so go to the house of mourning that you might learn the lesson that God alone is our refuge and our strength for this difficult world. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you in Jesus. The preacher goes on. And he points out the reality that wisdom may be gained through a funeral, can be lost. That's part of what he's getting at here. It's the long haul, the long view that he's calling us to. He says in verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. All this wisdom that maybe we gain can be vanity if we allow bribes and the temptations that are there to, to drive us away from this sort of humility before the Lord. It can be lost. What matters is the long haul. What matters is sticking to a life of humility and dependence on the Lord through the ups and downs of life. Wisdom is shown by sustained patience and waiting on God, not merely short-term decisions. Better is the end of the thing, he says, than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There can be so many things that take us off the path of wisdom. It can be a, a bribe of some, port, some sort, some sort of enticement to pleasure, some sort of false and ultimately empty reward. It can be impatience and anger. It can just be weariness and waiting. I'm humbling myself here, Lord. Where's that exaltation you're talking about? And the preacher says, don't do that. Stay humble. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the, in the heart of a fool. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask. This is a temptation to many of us as we grow older. We can actually display great pride in idolatry, in nostalgia. The good old days. Why do we have to deal with this stuff? Why is there all this polarization going on? Why is the younger generation not getting it right? What's going on here? And, and we are just as proud as anyone else in that because we're putting our pride in what used to be. 
And not recognizing that the day of prosperity and the day of adversity both come from the same God who's sovereign over all. So actually, we're speaking against the Lord in that. We're displaying pride. And we're in danger of losing wisdom with that mindset. Because God designed the old days for His purposes, and He designed these days as well. And you are in these days, and you're called to walk in humility and dependence on Him now to be a part of what He's doing now. That's what he's getting at here. God is in control. He's in charge. God is in in charge of all. He's not given us to something else to be in charge. Now it can be hard at times, but the safe place comes because God's in charge. He's not capricious. He's not unwise. Loki is not in charge of tomorrow. Entropy is not in charge of tomorrow. God is in charge of tomorrow. And you might feel like the demons of Murphy's Law are always at work running things, but no. God is running things behind all that. And there may be interference, but He is in charge. And so we mustn't turn towards rebuking demons or engineering solutions, but instead turn who God, who is sovereign, humble ourselves before the Lord and He will exalt us. Depend on Him for strength to endure. Depend on Him for any solutions He would provide. Look to Him in the uncertainty of today and tomorrow. The Invictus poem can tempt us in many ways, in subtle ways. We can live our daily moments just like the poet. Thinking that we can control things. We can work our plan and make it happen. And not looking to the Lord. And He's there for us. He's given us Christ. This is the the side of things that aren't fully developed in Ecclesiastes, though alluded to. We've looked at that already. God is sovereign. We see it here. God brings judgment. He brings reward to those who trust in Him and and punishment to those who have rejected Him. These are things in Ecclesiastes explicitly pointing to the fulfillment of that through Christ. And so He's given us Christ. That's our exaltation. That's the grace that we need. And I love how Apostle Paul takes the truths of Ecclesiastes and weaves them in with the promises of God in Romans 8. I've said it before. Take a look at this wonderful chapter. You can look through Uh, through it and see these things and just let me revisit with you a section Romans 8 chapter 18 he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subject to futility again the word vanity same word hevel subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we live in this reality of, a, of vanity that the preacher's been talking about. And then he, he goes on to say, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him up for us all, how will we not also with Him Graciously provide us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who, uh, 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul could have put in there, as it is written, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In the middle of all these promises. But then he says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Those promises, they're our refuge. They're our wisdom. They're our strength. They, they are how God meets us as we humble ourselves before Him and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't handle it. Yes, you've called me to plan. You, yes, you've called me to be responsible. But I can't do anything to bring these things to pass. It all depends on you. And so I look to you. And I look to Jesus, who is the only one who accomplished all His plans and succeeded. These are wonderful promises. And God will actually design things in our lives. Days of adversity to get us to open up our eyes to this reality. To look to Him alone. To humble ourselves before Him. So don't despise the days of adversity. They're meant to humble you and turn you to Him. that you might no longer be opposed, but instead be blessed by His grace to be exalted. He alone is our hope and our strength and our wisdom. And when we get this, when we get the goodness of what we have in Him, when we live in that place, when we live in the Gospel, the good news that, that Christ is the righteous one. Christ has overcome. Christ rules and reigns now. And He will bring us home. He will work. We will be successful because of His mercy and grace. Because we're in Him. And He will return and He will renew all things. When we get that, it frees us to not live like a fool. Trying to control things. Trying to control conversations. Trying to control opinions of others. The Gospel already speaks God's opinion of us. You are so sinful and broken that God Himself in the flesh had to die for you. Yet so loved. So blessed. That He died for you and rose again. You are counted as sons and daughters of the King. That wonderful good news, we can stand on that and we can stand against the storms by His grace as we humble ourselves. As we let the, the days of sorrow and the days of adversity bring us back to that truth. Tim Keller puts it this way, the Gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Alfred Poirier, in his article in the Journal, Journal of Biblical Counseling, entitled The Cross and Criticism, brings some wonderful truth related. 
He says this, If I know myself as crucified with Christ, I can now receive another's criticism with this attitude. You have not discovered a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion, and my foolishness than any man can lay against me. I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. For even when they are wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins for which my Lord and Savior paid dearly when He went to the cross for me. I want to hear your criticisms are valid. And then he goes on to say, And I do not look ultimately for man's approval, for I have gained by grace God's approval. In fact, his love for me helps me to hear correction and criticism as a kindness. Oil on my head from my Father who loves me and says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. This is powerful. Good news for us. Because of the grace of God, when we humble ourselves before Him, we can live in the wisdom of depending on Him and in Him having all the forgiveness, all the assurance, all the love, all the confidence, all the certainty amidst a life full of uncertainty that we will ever need. So we must learn to resist pride. We must learn the wisdom of a funeral. We must embrace humility and the reward that we have through humility, the grace of God. So let me ask as we close, how are you doing? Where in your life do you need to humble yourself? What things in your life are going on that are likely God's attempt to get your attention, their adversity designed by Him to humble you, to look to Him alone? Let us learn the lesson of mourning that we might find the reward of humility. God being our all in all and way more than we will ever need. Let me pray and then I just want to encourage you to take a minute to ask yourself that question before the Lord. Ask Him to help you understand and walk in His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for who You are. We can run to You be safe. And I pray you'd help each one here to hear you, to run, to find the grace that is only in you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.